Hello, my name is Zoltan Chigesh, and this is Zoltan's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead. Welcome. I'm delighted to have Doug Cizarski today as my guest, as we had so many previous conversations. And when I had the idea of the whole own coaching podcast, you were one of the guests that I immediately had in my mind, as you are the head of AQR International, a prominent firm leading the distribution of a mental toughness measure. You are a leading person in the whole area of profiling and mental toughness assessment. I really respect and value both our friendship and uh, your contribution to the work. So welcome and thank you very much for accepting my invitation. It's a pleasure, Zoli. I'm really, really pleased to be here. And you're quite right. We always have really good conversations. I hope we have a conversation that interests our listeners today. I'm quite sure. May I ask you to give a quick introduction on yourself, so with your background and what brought you to this field? My background for many years, I suppose I'm a human resource development professional, but my particular brief was always problem solving. Every organization I worked for, they would bring me in because they had a particular problem. It was always a people problem. I developed a bit of expertise and after a while I decided that I would become a consultant because this was something that people would, organizations would buy, but they only wanted it for a few months. And I quite like that sort of life. My background is my degree is in economics. And that is significant because I fell in love with the subject. It really appealed to me. I remember the words the lecturer used on my first day. He said, economics is about how you create wealth and how you distribute wealth. This is important. As a society, we're going to improve we need to create more and more wealth to share it out and make everybody better. And by wealth, he meant not money, but everything that we see is valuable. And bear in mind, this is 50 years ago, Zoli. I was thinking about this the other day. He started talking about one day he said, water will be valuable. Only because it's, no, it won't. It comes out of a tap. In those days, you could buy bottled water, but it was Perrier. Only people who had pretensions would drink water out of a bottle now everybody does it we know how important and valuable water is. it's an example of how creating wealth is is important if i can interrupt you just, just for a second as you brought in the example of of water we as a psychologist are immediately associated to mental health yes being a, a type of wealth that has not really been recognized as something valuable on the long term or for or in the past, it was mostly taken for granted. And I think we are now both in the business of, well, I don't call it mental health, but uh, that's a good question. How would I call it? Mental we, capacity we, we value well-being. well-being. Yes. Yes. Psychological well-being. Feeling content. Absolutely. And that's, that's addressing the heart of the mental toughness concept, my interest in mental toughness. Because one of the little experiments we did which stuck me was 
they we went to work with the department store. We had this project for the degree, and the department store had some fabric which they couldn't sell. It was very high quality fabric, very elaborately designed, but they couldn't sell it. They said, "Use uh, what you've learned on your economics degree. Can you help us shift it?" And we looked at it and we analysed it, and we did something nobody else expected us to do. We first of all we put the product in the middle of the department. Everybody would go past it, so nobody could ignore it. And we doubled the price. Everybody expected us to reduce the price to a level where it would just disappear. We doubled the price, and it shot out of the store. Ever it was sold out in days. The question for me was, that's not what economic theory said should happen. You know, it's a lower price, you shift more stuff, and of course the penny then dropped. Confounding factor is people. People don't operate according to systems, and everybody's individual, and everybody responds in their own way. It could be emotionally, mentally, in different ways to the same events, and that's what started to get me interested in psychology. And I suppose that was, you know, in those days there wasn't such a thing as behavioural economics. There is now. I suppose we were really flirting with the idea of behavioural economics, and then when I did my projects, you know, the projects that I describe, very often I would find the workforces and the management teams that I worked with didn't respond in a way that they should. So I'll give you an example. This one's very dear to my heart: performance management systems. The nonsense. Very, very rarely do you see one that works. Organization after organization has this belief that here is a system. I tell people exactly what I want from them, and of course they're going to respond exactly how I expect them to respond. That never happens. Some people won't participate. Managers don't like running them. So it's the human factor that reduces the system and makes it, you know, valueless. That's true about everything we see. So that's fed and developed my curiosity over the years. Why do people respond in different ways to events, and often in an unpredictable way? Can we understand that better? Because if we can, then perhaps we can do something about it, something more effective. And how come that you didn't become a psychoanalyst or a therapist? So how did the concept of mental toughness come to your? Field of vision or to your interest. So why mental toughness and why not something else? Well, that, partly that's well, it's not totally an accident because I was already looking at ideas that I now know are, are part of the mental toughness framework. But I met somebody you know very well, Professor Peter Clough, and he was a, a young aspiring psychologist when I met him. He came to work for me. Then he left to go and pursue a career in academia, and his big interest was this concept of mental toughness that had been developed maybe ten, fifteen years earlier in North America. A, a sports coach called Jim Lower coined the term mental toughness, and he realised that you can make a difference with athlete by working on their mental approach to a game or an event, as well as their physical and skills approach. And he was very successful with this, but nobody could understand it. And he he obviously knew what uh, what he was doing, but in the world of sport, it's very competitive, so he didn't naturally sort of naturally share it with people. So a lot of academics began to be interested in 
trying to understand what it was. So Peter was one of them. Because we worked very closely together, he would still work for me, even though he went into the world of academia. He would talk about it all the time. First of all, uh, my reaction, I have to admit, Solly, was like a lot reaction of some people even to this day. When I heard the word toughness, I thought, oh, I don't like that. Then mm-hmm. bit by bit, as Peter explained it to me, I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then one day we were working with the UK Customs and Excise Operation. Now, it doesn't operate this way now, but in those days, the excise bit is VAT, value-added tax collection, and the customs bit is drugs prevention and preventing things being smuggled into the country. So they're actually two very different types of operations. And the excise officers were more like bureaucrats and administrators. The customs people were more like policemen, you know, very hard-nosed. And one of the challenges that uh, we were set was to try and, first of all, assess everyone in preparation for a big change in the organisation and then develop team working. And so we developed an exercise that would be based on elements of expertise in one of those areas. So, for example, we would design a tax problem and then we'd put, we used to put do this in groups of 12, we'd put six excise officers in a room and six customs officers. And the idea was the customs, the excise officers should be able to understand what the problem is quickly they should be able to do it quicker than the customs officers. We wanted to see how did they bring the customs officers on board to solve the problem. And that's not what happened. What happened was the customs officers, in almost every case, took over. They didn't know what the problem was. The experts were sat on the other side of the table, but they would take the problem over, they would come up with a solution, and they would bring the the excise officers into the solution and we thought well why is this and we realized then that there was a degree of confidence in one group of people that didn't exist in the other peter had been talking to me oh for months about mental toughness and we sat there in the evening having seen this for the first time and i just turned around to peter and said is that what you mean by mental toughness and he said yes and Peter, at that point, had only ever worked with it in the world of sport. But it was just one of those moments when we saw the four Cs in operation in front of us, but not in a sports setting, in a business setting. I always love those moments when concepts come to life and when the textbooks or the articles become visible and they just step out from the pages of my reading. I can really feel the thrill of that moment. Yeah, well, it was. And, you know, I went on holiday about three weeks ago when we passed the hotel where this happened. And I said to my wife, that's where mental toughness was born. And then, of course, the next bit of the story is we started to go to um, all different types of organisations, people in the world of education, which made a difference there for pupils and for teachers, into the world of business into the world of social mobility. We very quickly went into that world. That's working with people often from areas that have some social or economic disadvantage. In other words, what you find is their attitude is, we're never going to do it. We can't do it. And yet they would have all the talent and skills and abilities you could possibly want. Because of their environment, they wouldn't believe in themselves. 
you could take the concept and apply it in those areas and you could change people's lives. In many ways, the most rewarding aspect of our work. What I'm hearing is that, and I'm not just hearing, I'm aware of it from our previous conversations, that mental toughness in your approach is something that can be developed, can be enhanced to get to higher levels so people can become more mentally tough, which will be reflected in their performance or their or the outputs of their work. But before we go there, will you define mental toughness for us? Because okay. I have an understanding of it, but I think for our audience, it will be a valuable thing. That What is your definition of mental toughness? Okay, so there is now a definition that is very widely accepted. We've learned that more than 90% of universities around the world accept this as the definition of mental toughness. So mental toughness is a personality trait. We know it's an aspect of personality, and that's important to understand, which explains in large part how we respond mentally to events, that's stress, pressure, opportunity, and challenge, every aspect of life, in the, irrespective of circumstances. That differentiates it from behavior. And this has been one of the big issues and developments for us, because most of the time when people talk about personality, they're actually really talking about behavior because they're, they're very familiar with things like MBTI or you know Jungian psychology or the big five model. But those are all behavioral models. What they're describing is how you act when things happen. But before there's an action, there's always a prior reaction. So when something happens to us, our action isn't the first thing we respond with. There's a mental response. And what we now know from the research is that that mental response is a significant factor in our behavior. It's fundamentally more important than understanding behavior. But I can understand why people have been so focused on behavior, because you can see behavior and easily describe it. It's almost impossible to see your thoughts. Very difficult to actually understand your own thoughts or anybody else's. I can't see inside your head and you can't see inside mine. What I'm thinking of right now is that behavior is a very tempting concept because, as you are saying, it's it's easily observable. And, of course, we can work with observable thought, observable things because they are in front of us, like for us as consultants or psychologists. But how do we apply, then, the mental toughness concept if it is not visible? If it is not there, shouldn't you, so aren't you translating it to behaviors? So which is then ending up with the very same approach as the other tools that you, or other concept that you have just mentioned? Well, it's so a very what, good question. First, let me first say that I'm not dismissing behavior or understanding behavior. To understand behavior is very important because we can describe what we expect from people in terms of the behavior. We can't describe what we expect from people in terms, I can't say, and I want you to think this way. I might actually want you to think this way, but I will be saying, okay, whatever you think, I want you to behave this way. The important thing is the development of the four C's model and now the eight factors has enabled us to understand how that those thoughts come together to understand how we think. So we now have a framework for doing it, for understanding mental toughness. It is true that sometimes, in order to explain it to individuals, we have to connect to descriptions of behaviors. 
because it's quite a quite a tricky concept to understand. But once people have understood that connection, they are capable of working backwards and say, oh, right, yes, I can understand why having a degree of emotional management has its consequences in outbursts or anger or something like that. So we have a framework, but the big advantage is we now have a psychometric measure, which acts like, uh, which helps us to be able to actually pin down what mental toughness is. And because of the rate factors, and every single one of us has a different profile in terms of those eight factors, so we can understand the nuances of our mental approach to events through using the framework and the questionnaire. Is it okay for you if, as a part of this episode, we share a, a written summary of the eight factors? Okay, so if I, if I start, mental toughness is the overarching concept. Underneath that, we know it consists of four constructs, which are sort of concepts in their own right. That's the concept of control, commitments, challenge, and confidence. Each of those has two contributory factors, which gives rise to the eight factors. First thing to understand is all eight factors are independent of each other. So none move, you know, you can't just change one and they'll all move. They're all quite independent. So the eight factors are life control. This is where the sense of can do sits. Very simply, when you give some people a task, some people will say, leave it with me, I'll just get on with it. Other people will say, oh, I'm not sure I can do it. It's, the difference is mental. The second factor is emotional control. It's more accurately emotional management. It describes the extent to which you can manage your emotional responses. It's not always helpful to reveal your emotional responses to others. Some of us can manage that, others can't. The third factor is goal orientation. And this is about whether, whether you can visualize your purpose. You like working to goals. But the fourth factor is achievement orientation. So even when you have a goal, not everybody does what it takes to achieve the goal. So achievement orientation is describing the extent to which I will do what it takes to hit that goal. What I've just described to you, those uh, four factors, broadly equate to what people understand as resilience. So resilience... The definition is, it's the ability to recover from an adverse situation. That doesn't mean you want to do this happily. It means you have to do it. And it's a backward-looking concept because it's responding to something that happened in the past. It's a valuable quality. Resilience matters. You know, we need resilience. However, it's not the thing that makes us totally content because we live a lot of our life in the present and in the future. We need to be able to adopt a positive and an optimistic approach. The next four factors capture the idea of positivity. And the first element is risk orientation. Risk orientation is describing when you look at what's coming up, and you may not even be able to see it clearly, do you see it as full of opportunity, as something to be grasped, or do you see it full of threat and something to be avoided? That's just a mental difference. It's nothing to do with your level of skill or knowledge. The next quality is the one that I got most excited about when we, we discovered it, and that's learning orientation. So as we go through life, we have opportunities to learn every day from things that happen to us and around us. Some of us 
are very reflective. We extract all of that useful learning. Others put blinkers on and try to close their eyes. If, if something adverse happens, they try to forget about it and they ignore the learning. And they typically will often repeat mistakes and they will not make as much progress as somebody who learns from events. You go on, my question is, how come that this is the most interesting for, factor for you? You were so enthusiastic when you mentioned it. Well, and you, because... you were smiling and you but this is something that the audience cannot see, that you were smiling and you were like, yes, this is this is the thing. The, well, why is learning orientation your, your favorite? If I can say it, it's your favorite. This illustrates a kind of thing. I'm loving every minute of this journey. And so we have a piece of research from the University of Western Ontario that looked at the mental toughness concept and they said, yeah, the, our version is valid and the measure and the measure works. And they then did a study and they found that about 55% of mental toughness in general is genetic in origin, 45% is environmental in origin. In other words, big proportion of your mental toughness approach to life, you have learned through your life experiences. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at what learning orientation means, somebody who has a high level of learning orientation is somebody who's likely to have developed a significant degree of mental toughness. So that's why I say it's the beating heart. It's, it's almost the the thing that drives mental toughness in a lot of people. So, where it can become a, a self-reinforcing spiral. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's what I'm hearing. Yes. Uh, we'll touch upon a, a word that's become part of our lexicon, self-awareness. I think this is about self-awareness as well. And we know yeah. how important self-awareness is. But people often talk about self-awareness about behavior. We're talking about self-awareness about your mindset. And then the final two factors are about having self-belief in your abilities. And there are two broadly two kinds of abilities. There's the skills and knowledge uh, that you have. And the, the, the interesting thing is we accumulate skills and knowledge all of our days. But very often we don't believe that we have enough or we believe that others have got more. And that, that's and that's often incorrect. But if we believe those things, we don't use our abilities. The extent to which we will actually optimize things and deal with, you know, the difficulties in life depends on our belief and our abilities to do so. And then the final one, which is also very important and has been kind of a revelation in the past few years, is interpersonal confidence. Initially, we thought that was about assertiveness, you know, imposing yourself on other people. But it's not that. It's about being prepared to engage with other people. So a very simple example would be you're going to an event. There are 50 people in a room. You've never met them before. If you want to extract the maximum value from that event, you walk into that room and you start talking to people. You're not embarrassed by that. But some people can't do that. They'll, they'll walk around the edge of the room. They'll wait for somebody to approach them, that sort of thing. And the other manifestation, in, which links to learning orientation in a little way, is being prepared to ask questions. Many people don't ask questions because they think it makes them look stupid. But somebody who's mentally tough doesn't think that way. The instant they've asked the question and got an answer, they know they're no longer stupid. 
then I considered this uh, this conversation as a proof of my high levels in in this part of mental toughness because I dare to ask these questions. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Thank you very much for this walkthrough. And what what really fascinates me is that you already mentioned that there is proof for the genetic background of the concept. And I think as a psychologist, I think that's that's a pretty important finding. So what really impresses me is that we have a measure which opens up the gates of research as the concept of mental toughness can be linked to other concepts and other phenomena. Were there any outcomes or results that were surprising for you when you were examining mental toughness? Yes, I think there are two. One was, I suppose, you know, when you're very familiar, and a lot of people will be familiar with Dweck's growth and fixed mindset. So there's a very there are similarities between the idea of growth mindset and mental toughness. But mental toughness is a spectrum. The opposite of mental toughness is mental sensitivity. Whereas in Dweck's world, the opposite of growth mindset is fixed mindset. We know from our research that there's a correlation between performance and your level of mental toughness. So we know that the research, wherever we go, whether it's education, sport, uh, business, 25% of the difference in performance between individuals is explained by the differences in the level of mental toughness. That's okay? a huge percentage. But the interesting thing is there's no such thing as a purely mentally tough and a purely mentally sensitive individual. We work at the top of some of the biggest organizations in the planet. And when you assess them, and this is very relevant for leadership and executive coaching, you'll find in terms of those eight factors, on six of them, they are very mentally tough, and that's what's got them there. On maybe two of them, they're mentally mentally sensitive. And that, that degree of mental sensitivity is what gives them a problem or can give them a problem, but it's never been a factor for them in the past because their mental toughness factors have driven them to the top of an organization. So a very simple example is if your interpersonal confidence happens to be one of your lowest scores and you've got to the top of the organization, by the time you get to the top, your big challenge is to engage a lot of people with you. And if your interpersonal confidence score is not that great, it is now holding you back. You know, so it's the, it's the idea of nuance, being able to understand that none of us are perfect in any way and that we all have these kind of hot spots and cool spots. And we try to avoid talking about strengths and weaknesses. We really don't like to, using that language. We prefer to talk about advantage and disadvantage. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. With the, say, the life control scale, you can have somebody who is mentally tough in terms of life control. So they're high achievers. And because of their life control, you ask them to do something, they'll go for it. Some people would say that's a strength. We say it's, it, it's an advantage in some circumstances. Because what happens with an event that requires forethought they don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about it they leap into it what happens if there's uh, the event is actually harder than they can genuinely achieve they don't see that they walk into it and they experience burnout no no it's no longer an advantage in those kind of settings so how can it be 
a strength and a weakness at the same time. It is a, it's an advantage and disadvantage depending on circumstance. And then when and we really, get to the other end of the scale, the, the mentally sensitive end, you find exactly the same thing. So it can be a disadvantage to be mentally sensitive in terms of life control because you hold back. You're always the last to volunteer, the last to get engaged. But actually, in some circumstances, that's an advantage. You've actually waited and you've assessed everything until you feel you're ready to go for it. And you might have a different type of confidence about moving forward or self-belief. So is that a weakness? And so what we're learning is this nuance matters, really, really matters. And that, I think, is central to what coaching is about. I absolutely agree. And I, what I really appreciate in the concept, as you are talking about it, is that both of the, let's call them endpoints, can have very positive readings. However, what can still be puzzling is that the that the research shows that higher levels of mental toughness are associated with, with better performance. There yeah. must be some kind of a trick on the mental toughness end of the scale. The magic word comes back, self-awareness. Because all of the research that evidences that sort of link with mental toughness, with uh, performance, with well-being, doesn't examine the extent of self-awareness about those qualities. But what we know from more specific studies is that a mentally sensitive individual, if they're self-aware about their profile, their patterns of mental toughness and mental sensitivity, they can learn to optimize the mental toughness and learn to cope with or deal with areas of mental sensitivity. And that actually picks up on an earlier comment you made, Zoli. You, you said, we now know how to develop mental toughness. Well, we do, but we don't have to develop mental toughness. We, have, we, can, we can work out how to cope with our areas of mental sensitivity. Isn't coping a kind of development of that scale? It is. I'll give you an example of why that's important. For instance, we know that in general, the mentally sensitive are creative in a different way to the mentally tough. It's not absolutely black and white like this, but the mentally tough tend to be more structured in their creativity. The mentally sensitive tend to be more intuitive. So the mentally sensitive people will create the more unusual art, the more unusual music. So if you are that kind of person, you do not want to lose that. What you might want to do is to say, I know where my strengths are or where my advantages are. I know where my disadvantages are. I want to be able to protect my advantages and minimize any downside from my disadvantages or find myself in an environment where those disadvantages don't matter. So I don't want to change. And that's a, we, we have actually had Growing numbers of people who begin to understand that. I really like these two polarities. And thank you very much for bringing the example. So my, my question is that, are there any jobs or areas of activity where you would consider mental sensitivity to have more advantages than mental toughness, where you would hire for mental sensitivity compared to mental toughness? Uh, well, there are, but I'd quite like to just hijack your question just for a second, because Please. one of the things that we're coming to understand is Jim Law, the original guy who coined the term mental toughness, 
he used an interesting phrase when he was describing mental toughness. He said it was about enabling everybody to be the best version of themselves that they could be. Now, that is, there's a subtlety in there. It's not about being the best that they could be. It's about being the best version of themselves. So when you talk about achievement and performance, a mentally sensitive person might have disadvantages in different areas or different spheres compared to a mentally tough individual, but they can still be the best version of themselves that they can be. And from a personal perspective, you know, from a psychological perspective, that's about enabling psychological well-being, the idea of contentment, that I am optimizing my life and I'm doing as well as I can. You know, I might not do as well as Zolly, but actually I'm content with who, I'm, who I am and I know I'm growing a bit every day. So in one sense, a sort of a philosophy that underlines our application of the mental toughness concept is not to label people as good or bad, weak or strong. Uh, it's about you as an individual and being the best that you can be. But turning back more specifically to your, your question, we know that there are areas where mental sensitive qualities can bring advantage. So one is creativity. You know, if you look at the um, World Economic Forum list that they produced a few years ago about the What's it, the 14 qualities that are going to be important for success in the 21st century? One of them was creativity. Another one was curiosity. If that is really important, and I believe it is, then you can't rely on just one type of creativity, although the mentally tough in most organizations will dominate by virtue of their other qualities. What you want to do is to have as creative an environment and have ideas coming from every perspective so the mentally tough will often bring a perspective to an organization that won't be immediately obvious to a lot of people in the organization so that's a, i think that's a huge added value the other is some evidence that the mentally sensitive will bring a different caring approach to a situation or an individual than a more mentally tough, tough person would. And I think this is the difference between compassion and empathy. So a mentally sensitive person is more likely to be empathetic. Well, you know, if they're more of a, a lower level of emotional control, they're more likely to feel somebody else's emotions and understand them and respond to them in that way. Whereas a more mentally tough individual may well be more compassionate. You know, won't necessarily feel somebody's emotions, but we'll understand them and we'll deal with them from that perspective. So again, the, the mentally sensitive might be able to deal more effectively with some types of clients than the mentally tough person would. So there's just a couple of you know, examples of areas where mental sensitivity may well be an advantage. I've heard two very positive things, and let me just reflect on them by, by acknowledging them. It's the philosophy that you have mentioned being the best version of yourself that really links to my approach to coaching. As my focus here is, is mostly on coaching applications, I'm, I'm really glad and grateful that you brought in this philosophical remark. And that's where I think that the, the empty concept, so the mental concept fits very well with the whole idea of coaching. The examples that you brought in, they bring me the idea of diversity. This is a dimension where diversity 
is important. And we shouldn't just go for mental toughness, but we should appreciate the sensitivity part as well. I completely agree. And it's something of growing interest over the last 18 months or so since I got into a, a discussion, or more accurately, a disagreement with somebody who stood up in a conference that I was also speaking at, spoke about diversity and inclusion, and promptly argued that mental toughness was a factor that was counterproductive for diversity and inclusion. I did point out that what she was actually demonstrating was completely the opposite, because what you've just described is what I often say is, we talk about diversity and inclusion, and we talk about, again, a bit like behavior, the things we can see, color of the skin, gender. These are easily identifiable. What we don't tend to touch upon is, I don't like the way you think. I think you think in a different way to me. So a mentally sensitive person on life control who is, let's go for it, and a mentally sensitive person uh, or a mentally sensitive person on life control who's saying, hang on, hold on a minute. Well, the mentally tough person is thinking, what a wimp. The mentally sensitive person is thinking, you're a bully. But they are labeling people mentally. Where my thoughts are going, so where I am going with, with this is the, it, and it may be a, a big jump, perhaps a potential, perhaps a, a topic for our next conversation is, is culture, organizational yes. culture. As most of the coaches are working in the context of certain organizational cultures, and they can imagine using the mental toughness concept to, to map cultures. As I do see certain teams to have a, a culture or a set of norms or expectations that really fit to the mentally tough description. So let go for it. We believe in everything. You no need to wait and put very pushy things. And uh, I can imagine using the the 4C concept for mapping out cultures. Question for that. Is there any research on culture or the close environment of an individual affecting the mental toughness of the individual? So how does my environment affect my mental toughness? It's a brilliant question, and uh, you're describing what is probably the core of our practical work. As you know, our mission is to take the concept all over the world, so we develop partnerships with people. We don't tend to do a lot of delivery work ourselves, but the little, small amount that we do is all OD-related. And one there's not yet published research, because it's very hard to find research in an organizational context because there's so much happening in an organization that you know it's very hard to sort of say and this happened because of that because there are so many other factors well there are some kind of i'd call them fundamental truths when you go into an organization whether it's a school college university business charity the mental toughness levels of the people at the top of the organization are reflected in the mental toughness levels further down the organization. You never find a mentally sensitive senior team and a mentally tough lower team. Now, when you think about, I mean, it's, many people will understand the senior team of an organization, senior leadership, really set the culture for the organization. They dictate what the culture is going to be. If they are mentally tough, they will create a more mentally tough culture. By that, I, I mean, very specifically, a more resilient and a more positive and optimistic 
culture. So mental toughness picks up on those two aspects of culture. What we do see is this relationship between leadership and culture. And of course, the thing that's going between them is mental toughness. So there is a connection. Mm -hmm. And then the interesting thing, Zolly, is we are not coaching specialists. We obviously operate in the coaching world. We We work with lots of coaches, but we can't avoid having coaching all of our OD work. So to me, coaching and sort of OD consultancies are just two different doors to enter an organization to deal with the same problem. I love this picture, especially with the spreading of team coaching and group coaching where we where we tend to see or where I tend to see that we just have a spectrum of interventions all focused on dealing with organizational organizational problems. Individual coaching focuses its individual contributors, leaders, then team and group coaching or trainings do focus on, you know, groups, smaller amounts of people, giving them skills, self-reflection, whatever, and then we have large group interventions. So this is a spectrum, all different doors. Now, as you speak about the how this a senior team's mental toughness influences the mental toughness of entire organization. I, I know I have some research ideas. What do you say, or how do you see, does the self-reflective ability of a senior team spread through an organization like their mental toughness? Well, that's. I think you come back to your, where we started, we were talking briefly about behavior. Self-awareness about our mindset, our mentality, begins to help us to understand how we come over to other people, right? So if we begin to understand that, so this is the the link to behavior, then we can also then begin to understand why people might not like the behaviors that we demonstrate. You have to, it has to be like a link. These are the behaviors I demonstrate. People don't like them. Where do those behaviors come from us? Because I'm thinking this way. I think I'm the greatest person on the planet, or I really believe in my abilities, and I don't listen to anybody else because I don't think they've got the same level of abilities as me. I need to change my thinking. I need to accommodate other people. That translates into different behaviors. That translates into a different response from the workforce. You know, it's entirely about that. I mean, we, I have some fascinating little case studies you know of case studies of people who've got to the top of an organization and they come and they are they're almost crying they're saying you know i've had nothing else but success for 20 years i've got to where i want to be now nobody will do what i want to do well what got you there it was your drive and your total commitment and your preparedness to work hard now turn look around and look at the people that behind you that you need to bring on board because you can't solve this on your own, they're not going to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. They have a different approach to life. Your challenge is to optimize that for them and for you. You having to kind of think, get people to think differently. And the key thing is we're working around that thinking bit. I never claim to be a psychologist. I'm a pretend psychologist. Negative uh, expression. <laughs> I think they call it metacognition. You know, it's thinking about thinking, understanding why and how I think the way I do. If you are okay with it, then I I won't have any other questions this time. 
just an invitation for you to join me for a next conversation in the upcoming weeks or months. But before I say goodbye, is there anything else, a, a closing sentence, a final remark that you would like to say that that may have stuck inside you and you would like to add to this conversation? Well, there's only one thing. I've been doing this for since 1985. And I look back and I think, why am I so, still so excited about it? It's because it's not just a concept, it's a journey. It is leading us all into understanding more and more and more, especially about understanding individual differences. You know, in the world of psychology, you get, look at all these psychology programs that are run in universities. They all teach people about individual differences, but it's at that level. It's not at a practical level. I think mm -hmm. what we're being able to do is to bring some concepts down and put them into the hands of practitioners. So uh, attach meaning to some of these ideas. And I'm just finding it hugely, hugely exciting. And I'll give you one little last case study. And I, and I tell people this because it gives me goose pimples. In the last 12 months, we've been talking to a group of researchers in another country. I won't identify the country. There are particular reasons for doing it. But they're actually not psychologists, they're doctors. And they came across our concept and... They work in a hospital that looks after young children who are have leukemia. Now, for most of them, it's a terminal situation. Oh. But the parents live in the hospital whilst the child's in the hospital. And what they noticed was the parents weren't dealing with the stress and the pressure of the situation terribly well. And that was creating problems for everyone. So they looked at the mental toughness concept and thought, well, maybe here's something we can use. We can you know, get people to understand their become self-aware, can we help them adopt a better approach? And it worked. So they got very excited, and now they want to do some formal research on it. But what they all then noticed was that not only did the parents begin to respond better, but the children began to respond better. So the children wow. began to be more relaxed. But here's the magic thing. What they then found was that treatments became, began to become more effective. I don't, I've got goose pimples thinking about it. You know, I just think we That's... probably understand about 1% of the power of the mind. And for me, it's a privilege to be involved in that exploration. I might only ever take that to 1.1%, but it's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. Thank you very much for sharing that. And it's wonderful. I mean, honestly, wonderful. And it opens up such a, a wealth of you know, ideas and questions. Thank you very much for bringing in that piece of research. I'm just grateful for it, as grateful as I am for the whole conversation. Thank you very much, Doug. It was a thank pleasure. You, as always, it's been a huge pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zoltanchigesh.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.